Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast, brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Here we share information about farm practices, pulse markets, research outcomes, market development efforts, and much more. My name is Sarah Anderson, and I'm the Agronomy Manager with SPG. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sean Deerland, Pulse Crop Grower and Chair of SPG's Board of Directors, as well as Judy Elias, Operations Supervisor at the Canadian Grain Commission. In this episode, we'll cover off the 2021 harvest season and highlight some of the key considerations for growers before they sell their pulses. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate you guys being here, um, especially, you know, we're still kicking through harvest season. And uh, again, the, the 2021 challenges continue. So appreciate you guys taking the time. Sean, let's uh, start with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your farming operation in general? And I guess I'm particularly interested in the pulses and the varieties that you typically grow. Sure. Um, Kyle, Saskatchewan, um, approximately 15,000 acres. We have about 10% of that is irrigated land. We grow generally 50% pulse crops. Uh, that usually comprises of large green lentils, uh, red lentils, and yellow peas with chickpeas thrown in for a little bit of spiciness sometimes. So yeah, that's our, and pulses have been a key part of our rotation for the last 30 years. They basically, they're the crop that kind of pays the bills on our farm. Perfect. Yeah, so the, the full gamut almost of, of pulses, especially in your growing region. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Yep. And and Judy, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit more about your role with Canadian Grain Commission? And, you know, maybe a little bit more generally what the CGC does in terms of the role that they play with pulse production in Canada? Okay, well, I happen to be the, uh, first and foremost, I inspect grain. And I happen to be the manager at the Wayward Service Center, and I also look after the Calgary Service Center. And then the other half of my job, I am the producer car officer. And so I run the producer car unit as well. That's that's a new role that I've got. And as far as what the Canadian Grain Commission does for a pulse production, first and foremost, there's the safeguards for farmers and producer cars as part of that safeguard. And we do research and quality monitoring for export cargoes, and we do grading and weigh monitoring as well on vessels. So we're pretty comprehensive, but we're very behind the scenes. Perfect. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you guys have a lot, a lot going on, and we'll dig into a few, few more of those uh, items yeah. uh, a bit further on. Wonderful. Digging in a little bit more, just a a bit of a recap on this wonderful 2021 season, Um, certainly not short of its environmental challenges. And Sean, I guess, can you comment on what that's meant for your farm's uh, pulse harvest this season? Yeah, it's been one of the most difficult seasons, I guess, that I remember in my farming career. My dad is 88 years old, and he he said that he thinks it's probably the the roughest weather we've had in his in his lifetime, even. So that's that's saying something. We we had very little precipitation, you know, lots of heat. The heat, I think, was the most uh, troubling for the crop, uh, more so even than the drought. We started out with pretty good subsoil moisture, but the heat really cook things as far as at harvest time we've found that the pulses actually fared relatively well in relation to the other crops that we grow 
I would say that most of our other crops are down. The yield is down to, you know, 20% of a typical year, uh, where our pulse crops would probably be closer to 40 or 50% of a typical year. So it, it's still not great, but it's definitely been good to see lentils and peas, actually, in particular. We were quite surprised how well they stood up to the drought and to the heat. Within within that, I guess, maybe in the pulses, has there been any additional surprises, I guess, uh, particularly this year, aside from just them sort of outperforming the other crops? Yeah, the most surprising was, like I said, how even through the really tough conditions, they did perform very well. Like they, it's amazing to me how they grew so well on such little moisture. As I said, it's still, you know, 40 to 50% of a normal crop for us, but it's, you know, considering the the conditions that they, that they grew through, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, we had some negative surprises. The grasshoppers were a really frustrating thing for us to deal with this year. Uh, some of our fields we sprayed two and three times just to try to keep ahead of them. And a lot of cases it was a futile effort. It just wasn't, there was just too many grass, too much pressure to, to keep yeah. ahead of. Yeah. In terms of quality, maybe uh, either the grasshoppers or just quality in general, what are the first looks like of, of those pulses coming off the combine? Yeah, quality is pretty good. I would say it's a little bit less. Uh, the grading would be a little, not quite as good as last year. Um, there's quite a bit more sun bleaching in our large green lentils. The reds look really good. The yellow peas look really good. As I said, yield would be 15 to 20 bushel an acre. Lentils, a little higher on the reds. Uh, peas, yellow peas went probably uh, 20 to 25 bushels an acre. So like I said, that was quite good compared to the other some of the other crops in the area. Judy, Sean had mentioned a, a couple key grading uh, challenges this year, and, and I think generally we think in a drier season that quality, that's going to be taken off off the table, right? Quality is just going to be top-notch in a drought. But can you uh, comment on some of the specific grain quality issues that might present themselves in a season like this from, from your side well, of things? For sure. Uh, sometimes there'll be a smaller size in the lentils. Like I'm surprised that Sean hasn't and maybe that's not the same on his farm, red lentils can get really small and then you can lose lots of them in the dockage. So already you have a lower yield. And if you have those small reds, you can even lose more crop in the dockage because we're only allowed to use certain round hole sieves for cleaning. And in the greens, like Sean said, you know, they're being baked out there. So the color isn't as deep green as we would like to see and or anyone. But as always, pulses do grow good. They don't like wet feet. So there's not a lot to go wrong with pulses generally. It's a it's an easy crop to grade. And yeah. So grasshoppers certainly can also make for some problems. You can uh, get grasshopper staining on the peas, and then we call that earth tag. But with it being dry, well, I'm, I'm thinking most of the pulses are off now. So we shouldn't have to worry about that dewy morning and starting up the combine and squishing the grasshoppers right onto the peas and lentils. So. Um, and grasshoppers showing up in the sample, you guys would just consider that regular dockage or is there other special considerations for, for insect allowances? Well, it's a pretty tight tolerance when you start getting to the export. So, uh, But by the time it gets to the export situation, they've been very well cleaned and you know the parts are easy to get out. But the tolerance is very tight as far as insect parts in an export sample. 
Yeah, a lot of those factors really do seem to come back to the environment. But I guess for either of you, are there any agronomic or operational considerations that um, producers should employ to kind of mitigate that risk of downgrading, uh, maybe specifically in a season like this? Well, certainly you always have to watch your desiccants and be careful that you are spraying the right and and waiting the right intervals so that you don't have higher MRLs or uh, maximum residue levels and limits. And that's very important. And also, like Sean was doing, a lot of grasshopper spraying so that they didn't become a problem in, in his final sample. Yeah, I would echo that too. Like we would look at spraying the grasshoppers as much as a harvest uh, sample thing as as the you know the damage to the crop like we there have been definitely cases around our area where people have had trouble with earth tag from you know or, or too many i've even heard of too many grasshopper parts in the pulse crops so uh, i've seen actually some just horrifying pictures of grasshoppers in yellow peas in particular that you know you'd get like 15 20 percent of the sample was was grasshoppers which is just it's it's pretty wild Believe me, I do not want to see that in the sample coming into my office. No. I don't want to pick them out. <laughs> beyond that, too, the, the spoilage issue, you get uh, the moisture yeah. content of a grasshopper is quite high, so you can end up with uh, with spoilage issues as well in the bin. Really great comments, you guys. I, I think, you know, at least for myself on the agronomy side, we're so focused on those grasshoppers and, the, and their yield yield robbing factor, but uh, I think a really good reminder to sort of take that step further and and think about what it's also going to mean further down the line as we're weighing some of those uh, management decisions with grasshoppers. I'd also like to echo Judy's comment on uh, desiccant timing. For us, the most important thing we've found for grain in our large green lentils in particular is desiccant timing. If you're too early or too late, you end up with with grading issues. So, you know, to hit that window perfectly is is very important for us. also, just a comment on pre-harvest glyphosate, you know, it is it is not a desiccant, it is a pre-harvest weed control. So that's something people in particular will have to be very conscious of not going in too early and uh, hitting the window. As Judy said, for the MRLs, it's a crucial thing for our export markets that that, that be just top of mind for producers. Excellent. Yeah, I think some pretty timely reminders, always as we get a little bit later into the harvest season, then uh, some of those decisions get get sped up. So I appreciate those comments. From a grading perspective, is there anything that we didn't cover that's maybe new this season, Judy, or or pretty status quo in terms of pulse grading? Yeah, pretty status quo. Color is always a big thing and disease, but we we certainly aren't going to see any disease this year. So color is the big thing. And because the way they're sold, you know, people are are going and, and dipping into a bucket or barrel of lentils. And it's whatever mama sees. If she thinks that looks good, then she's going to take it home and feed her family. If she doesn't, she's going to leave it there and go to the next one. So that's why the markets are quite tight for color. We discussed some of the the agronomic considerations, but maybe shifting gears a little bit to the the operational side and and minimizing those harvest losses, you know, always with the goal in mind of of, uh, having the best quality grain that Judy just mentioned uh, at the the storefront at the time of selling, but also making sure that we're getting the most of it there as well. Sean, does your farm have, you know, any tips and tricks that you're willing to share in terms of combining, handling, storage, things like that? 
yeah, we, like I mentioned before, uh, desk and timings, we've found to be just key on our farm and doing a very good job of desiccating. Like if you end up with a lot of green plant material that hasn't been, you know, killed properly, that's really a kind of the biggest headache at harvest for us. Also, like we mentioned, earth tag and peas in particular, lentils sometimes, but for some reason seems to be a bigger issue in peas for us that you have to make sure that your headers are set properly, that you're not uh, digging a bunch of dirt. This year, that's not really been a challenge, but on a wetter year, that can definitely be a pretty big challenge. This, this year, it's mostly dust that just comes in and goes out the back. So yeah, and just making sure that your combine's set properly. Um, are some of the key things that we've found. Perfect. Yeah, digging into combine settings is is probably a, a pretty a pretty giant question, <laughs> I guess, to ask. Um, you know, it kind of seems like it can be a little bit more of an art than a science. You're you're always adjusting and and making those uh, decisions on the fly in the field. But could you comment maybe on some of the big factors that you consider, like you know, when you're harvesting those different types of pulses as well? What are you looking at? You know, in a chickpea that might be different than than a lentil or, or a pea, for example. Often on a chickpea, we always struggle with getting them in the combine. Like we have shatter losses at the header seem to be our biggest challenge with, uh, with the chickpea. Normally most pulse crops thresh very easily. So we just slow everything down on the combine, uh, make sure that you're not cracking anything or splitting anything in the combine. That's usually the, the important things for that. But typically it starts at the header for us on the combine is to eliminate the shattering losses with the crop. We bought air reels for our uh, combines this year just to help with a little bit shorter crop, a little bit thinner crop to make sure that we were getting it all actually in the combine. And then producers need to, as everybody knows, you need to really be conscious of losses and make sure that you're not don't have too much air and it's and, and there it's going to be different for every type of combine as well every different type of combine will have its different challenges i know we have i'm sure everybody can guess what kind of combine i have when we say that we tend to lose on the left hand side a lot coming over the sieves so that's a challenge for us excellent we want clean samples obviously that balance between dockage but also quality in terms of seed cracking and, and shattering to both of you, how do we sort of strike that that balance? You know, what's the lesser evil? More dockage or or more cracking, I should say. Well, we always aren't afraid to have a little bit of dockage in it because we think that the grain companies are generally going to take dockage, whether there's a lot there or not anyways. So we always err a little bit on the side of, you know, a little bit of dockage is okay. That's right. You can clean it out, but once you crack them, that's a grading factor and you don't want that. Perfect. Maybe switching gears to to sampling. I, I think that's a really important part of sort of this whole whole process in terms of getting it to market. So Sean, um, what's your what's your farm sampling protocol? You know, you have a lot of grain obviously coming in at once and we need to ensure that what's being collected at the farm gate is representative of what the grain companies are, are getting and representative in the bin. So yeah, what's your process? And then we'll get Judy to comment on if you're doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm very conscious. Like we find it, it's very important to have a representative sample. Nobody likes surprises at the unload. Like uh, the farmer doesn't like surprises and the buyer doesn't like surprises. Yeah. So what we do, it it can be extra challenging. Some of our bins are getting very large. Like we've got 60,000 bushel bins that we might be putting uh, red lentils in. So you think of the just the 
ridiculous size of that bin in relation to the tiny sample that you get. I think it's very important to have good sampling procedures to get a representative sample. We will usually take uh, have two pails set up. We'll have a smaller pail that we fill from the truckload. And then we take, uh, we stir that up and put some of that into the bigger pail and then mm -hmm. dump the rest of that initial pail back into the bin. And we do that for every truckload. We'll take, uh, like I said, we'll have two pails typically, fill to one, mix it up, dump some of that into the bigger pail and continue that for every for every load and then mix the bigger pail up and that's your bin bin sample. And I, I always try to keep, you know, three or four bags sometimes of a bin just because you might be marketing that grain or shopping around to many different buyers. So it's, it's always a pain to be short sample material to take around to different buyers. So we, we usually keep a pretty large sample. Good show, Sean. That's right on. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And and keeping a really good uh, hold on those on those bin run samples because they are gold. Yeah. You know, gone are the days where you can go to the bin and and uh, stick the shovel in and pull something out and and think you're going to get a good sample on a bin. Those days are totally gone. You'll never get this get the right answer. So everyone needs to do what Sean's doing. It's also important, we've found with, in particular, large green lentils, if you want the sample to stay representative, we usually seal it in a bag and put it in a fridge, actually, yep. just to kind of limit oxidation on the sample. The samples oxidize way faster than the bin will, so it's important to, we, we refrigerate it and seal it in an airtight bag. Perfect. Is that a measure, you know, that we should be considering for some of our other pulse samples or fairly restricted to to the large greens for us we only do it on our large green lentils because they oxidize the worst okay yeah perfect uh, sean you kind of mentioned yeah uh having a few different samples especially if you're marketing to maybe more than one place but judy what about options available to growers who are looking maybe to get some insight on a grade before they start marketing directly to the buyers you bet. I've got uh, three recommendations, actually. Uh, first of all, we have the Harvest Sample Program, and it's been running since the 70s. It's free to all producers. And all you have to do is sign up to the program and tell us what you're growing in a regular year. And we send you a package in the fall just before you get started harvest. And it has all the envelopes in it that you for the crops that you're growing. As you finish your harvest, you just fill the envelopes and pop them in the mail and it's sent right to Winnipeg. They're graded there and all kinds of testing is done. And we email you back the results of all the crops that you send to us. So you get a lot of good information quickly. And usually we try to get it back to you before you're even starting to haul. So you have a really good idea of what you've got before you sign contracts and, and get rolling on hauling your grain in. The other thing is if you want a more comprehensive knowledge of of what's in a bin, you can come right to the service centers and for a fee, we'll grade your sample and, and tell you the grade, dockage, moisture, 
on all those kinds of things that you need for pulses. And so then you get a certificate and you can use that to help you sign contracts. That's It's a little more, uh, you, you bring in a bigger sample so you get a better idea of your dockage and, and we take a really good close look at what's going on in your sample. So then once you've started hauling and if you have knowledge that you believe that you've got a certain dockage or a certain grade and you're hearing something different from the elevator company, you can ask for what's called a subject to inspector's grade and dockage. And I just recommend to producers, just say you want a second opinion on the grade and dockage of this of this truckload and you want it sent to the Grain Commission. And when we get a sample that way, both the producer and the elevator company get a copy of their certificate and then that's a binding grade that you'll be paid on. So it's something you can put in your back pocket if you need it. It's usually a really fine negotiating line that, or dance that a producer and elevator company play. But in the end, if you need to pull that ACE card, you can. Perfect. So we kind of have increasing levels of, as you move down the chain, uh, you know, the sample program, a little bit of an insight, not an official grade, moving Correct. on to sort of an official grade um, for the fee for service. And then if, if you need sort of that binding or or a bit of a trump card um, in, in terms of that second opinion from the Canadian Grain Commission, that would be your, your sort of last step in the process. Yeah, you bet. Okay. So if, if growers, you know, sitting here today, you know, are interested in the harvest sample program, is there still time for them to, to enroll in that or, or is it a little bit too late now that harvest nope, is underway? No, you can certainly sign up still. You can either go online to our website and just Google Canadian Grain Commission and that'll take you to our website and you can sign up for the harvest sample program or you could call any of the service centers and and we would gladly sign you up and get you rolling. Hopefully there is no reason why we can't wind it up by November 30th. Fair enough. Um, I, I guess just touching a little bit more on that grading factor, you know, I, I think you've probably heard it before too. Sometimes the word subjective gets thrown around a, a little bit, um, but we do have comprehensive grading guidelines. And I, I think sometimes that obviously different seasons will negate this a little bit, but are there ever instances maybe where a particular grading factor might be prioritized more in a given season relative to another where, where producers are maybe graded a little bit more harshly one season where, where they might not have a season before? Or is that just a bit of a misconception? Well, I think it's it's a misconception in some ways. For sure, there are some factors that shine more brightly in one year than another. Certainly on a year like this, where all the pulses have been baked in the sun, you're not going to get the color that you had before. So we're, we're not going to be looking for sprouting and, and disease isn't going to show up as much for sure as the color. So it depends on the year. Every year brings its own um, problem and degrading factor that weighs out more on one side than the other. That makes sense. Yeah. I guess going forward, um, you guys have commented both on sort of that end quality of lentils and and what our consumers are looking for. Is there any expectations that uh, the definition, I guess, of, of pulse quality will continue to evolve uh, with market demand and, you know, maybe different parameters that we might see measured more in the future? 
Well, certainly MRLs are a big, big deal. Uh, that maximum residue limit, we've, we've got to get a control on that and keep those limits down. And also, we're looking for new pulse uh, products. So there's a lot of flour being used. And, and so maybe protein could be something that gets measured in the future. Who knows how that's going to all roll out? Maybe Sean would know better than I would what's going to come in the future. Yeah, I would echo those as well. Um, as far as the MRLs, we have competitor countries that would just love to have Canada have a, a problem with MRLs. So it's, you know, it's a very crucial thing that we keep those where they need to be and uh, make sure that Canada has is known to have like the safest, best quality product that we that we can have. Um, the 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 protein thing is a very interesting subject. I know I've been to um, Pulse Protein and Pulse Flower uh, summits, and it was pretty interesting that there's it's still not really well understood area. So I think that in the future is going to have to probably evolve and get a little more precise. Um, it's something that I'm not even sure that all of the people who are making the pulse protein understand all the factors you know that go into making a good or a bad protein so i think i think like judy said that's that's an important thing that's going to have to evolve and we're going to have to get more understanding about you know how some of the different parameters affect the quality of the protein so yeah that's i would i would echo those comments great comments you guys yeah and i think definitely lots lots to learn going forward on some of those food quality parameters for sure. Um, that That's maybe a nice segue into the Pulse Research Program that you mentioned at the beginning uh, of the podcast, Judy. What type of analysis is the CGC kind of currently doing under the Pulse Research Program? Well, and that's a very good question. And I had no idea what the answer was. So yesterday I called uh, Dr. Ning Wang, who is the program manager for pulse research in the Grain Commission. And I asked him, what's happening in the in the land of CGC research? And he says that they have some external programs and internal programs. And his external project is in collaboration with SAS Pulse and SIGI and the University of Saskatchewan, the University of Manitoba and the Grain Commission. They're looking into the proteins. They're investigating the functionality of pulse flour and all the different functional properties of that. So then they would be looking at absorption and quality of protein, all the composition of the protein and how it performs, things that you know the general layperson doesn't even understand. And then internally, they are looking at wrinkled seeds. So that would be in the red lentils. And they are looking at the end use functionality and dehulling properties because you see uh, everyone remembers those years of red lentils where we've had a lot of wrinkling and then they would have a little bit of a clam shell, you know, that dip in the red lentil. And they're doing studies on that to see how that dehulls because they like to split red lentils. And then what degree of wrinkle affects all of that? 
So they're still fine tuning all of that. And then they work very closely with the Harvest Sample Program and they do protein, starch content and cooking quality on all the lentils and peas. And they have a very small staff. They have a staff of four and they're doing all these things. Plus they monitor cargo shipments to to the various countries that we sell to. So they're very busy. Absolutely. Yeah, the the comment of, of sort of operating behind the scenes definitely well demonstrated mm-hmm. in, in your long laundry list of uh, investigations. Really appreciate yeah. you reaching out to your colleagues to give us some insight there. Yeah, maybe on that, that looking forward front, I, I guess just a, a bit of a fun insight question for both of you. Are there any sort of traits, tools, technologies that you're really excited with, you know, maybe yourself as a pulse producer or for pulse producers for future harvest seasons? What what do you guys see coming down the pipe or, or maybe a wish list of, of what you'd love to have coming down the pipe? I think anything that helps, any kind of genetic traits I would look at that make the crops stand up better to the weather or to um like like we were talking about the color loss from the bleaching sun bleaching in the green landals that's that's a big one for me if the the better we can develop crops that can handle that better is definitely an asset for us i i guess for me that's that's kind of the big thing is developing crops that are more robust and able to handle environmental factors that are out of our control Perfect. Thoughts from you, Judy? Well, and certainly for us, it's it's the scientific research that makes the grading factors concrete as to as to the grade or degrading of of pulses to make it more objective. I would have to say, uh, percentage wise. So that'll come as as research gets better and better. Yeah, just just having a lot more research and seeing what new things we can do with our pulses like flour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think going forward, the flour and the protein part, like Judy mentioned before, better understanding how, you know, traits of the flour that the layperson wouldn't understand how that affects the milling quality so that we'll know as a producer what you can do to make a product that's more desirable to the buyer for you know some of those aspects i think that's going to be more and more important as we go forward well when you think about it when you go to the health food store and all the protein shakes are made out of pea protein and you know it's a big big industry and and we're at the forefront and we have to be proud as as pulse producers that we do that for the world and i can see pasta i can see breads there's all the sky's the limit for pulses yeah yeah it's very exciting times ahead um well I would love to keep peppering you guys with questions. I've been learning so much, but um, I guess maybe before we go, uh, is there any final comments that either of you would like to make on the 2021 harvest season or maybe advice or, or questions in general for producers for preserving pulse quality that you'd like to share? You want me to start, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> yep, sure. That that representative sample is the first and foremost. If you don't have a representative sample, you, there's no way you're going to get the proper information that you need about that crop that's in that bin. And know what you have before you go to the elevator. So you can use the harvest sample program, use a third party to have a grade done. Uh, come to the Grain Commission. We're always willing and, and love to talk to producers and help them out with their grades. 
And I guess I would, uh, most of the pulse harvest is done in our area. I would mm -hmm. suspect that it's wrapping up probably almost all, all over the province. So I think now people have to be conscious to maintain the quality that's in the bin. Uh, make sure that people check their bins. If they have aeration, make sure that they cool. We've always found on our farm that cooling the cooling the grain off is well worth it. Uh, it saves you a lot of problems down the road. But just keeping an eye on everything and making sure that what you have already in the bin stays the quality that it went in at. Solid advice. Well, thanks you two for, for bringing your expertise and observations to today's discussion. There's really plenty of information here for growers to keep in mind as they wrap up those final stages of, of this year's pulse harvest. For more information on harvest and storage of pulses, visit saspulse.com and click the production resources under the resources tab. Now we're going to check in with SPG's Director of Marketing and Communications, Amber Johnson, and John Dreger of Left Field Commodity Research for some insights on how the Canadian pulse market fared this growing season and what the future holds. My name is Amber Johnson, Director of Marketing and Communications with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. And today I'm talking with John Dreger, Vice President with Leftfield Commodity Research. We're going to talk about how the Canadian pulse market fared this growing season, coming off of one of the most significant droughts in over 30 years in Saskatchewan. We'll take a look at what the future holds for global demand for Canadian pulses as well. Thanks for joining us today, John. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, let's get right into it, John. Lots to talk about. It goes without saying that this has certainly been a challenging year for growers who battled everything from late season frost, extreme winds, hail, extreme drought conditions. And, and now we're seeing a lot of rain uh, during what was an early harvest across Saskatchewan in this growing season. So maybe let's talk about harvest here first. We had seen an early start uh, to harvest and I think still progressing quite a bit ahead of, of normal. But can you maybe share what the current status on harvest progression is right now? Yeah, and that varies a little bit by by crop, of, of course. Uh, sort of the, the, the more recent Sask Ag report showed uh, the uh, the pea and lentil harvest probably at about 85% done. Of course, that, that report is a little bit dated, so probably pushing towards 90% plus. Uh, so so the peas and lentils are, are well far along, and, and which is fortunate because most of them came off before some of that untimely rain rolled through so so that was uh that was good for those crops and and that early start helped dodge a lot of that rain maybe less so for example something like chickpeas you know the last report showed that was uh, still in fairly early stages so maybe that uh, that crop a little more likely to be maybe a little more impacted by this this rain a little more of a delay and you know potentially if there's some quality issues that spill over into that uh, maybe similar for fabas so kind of a mix i guess between the different crops but but certainly you know the the, the largest pulses the peas and, and the lentils uh, had that advantage of that early start and and maybe just dodged some of this untimely weather for the most part. Awesome. Well, that, that's, that's certainly good news and a very challenging year. So how have the extreme conditions impacted yields and quality so far, uh, looking at that early data for the new crop? Yeah, you know, in, in terms of production overall, and, and so we did have a StatsCan production report that came out last week, sort of their initial one of the year, and, you know, really no surprise, just a sharp drop in, in production for uh, really for all pulses. 
you know, in terms of, of their estimate for peas, you know, down over 40% from last year. So you know, a huge drop lentils down over 30% in, in many ways, no surprise, you know, I guess in terms of, of our own expectations, you know, the, the yield group number they showed was a little lower than ours, you know, not, not shocking based on, of course, not just the anecdotal reports, the, the provincial crop reports. And, and again, no, no surprise. Everyone's heard how dry it is, how challenging the conditions are, you know, and, and I, I guess the, one of the things that's perhaps a little bit interesting as well, as we think about, you know, the statistics Canada data, and, and again, everybody sort of can decide you know, whether it's a good number or not a good number, always, you know, always debate. One of the things, because of the nature of the report and how they compiled their data, they basically used a historical average for abandonment. And so basically what that means is, is they haven't really accounted for the fact that inevitably there will be more fields that were written off or more acres that are abandoned or, or maybe even you know, some, for example, for put up for forage if the yields looked really abysmal and you know, cattle forage is low and those sorts of things. And so we may well actually have reports going forward that show a bit of a smaller number yet as they maybe sort of catch up on the harvested acres. And so, you know, again, you're sort of maybe, you know, drilling down into, into the finer details when, you know, there's still crop to come off and we don't know what the final outcome will be, but basically just to, just to kind of uh, yeah, reiterate the point that, you know, that, that production way down and, you know, possibly even a little more downside yet to what those, what those numbers look like. Uh, we do have a report again coming out with stats kind of production number next week compiled in a bit of a different manner. This one's using uh, satellite imagery, so it'll be be interesting to see what they tell us there. Again, not the final word, but likely again just showing a showing a low production number, just a reflection of the conditions that we've been talking about really all summer. Great, yeah. Again, like you said, not not a lot of surprise there, but to put those actual numbers kind of to it now that we're a little bit further along in the season is is interesting and and something to keep in mind. Um, John, what what do you think the opportunity looks like right now then for for new new crop pulses to potentially head perhaps straight into the market from harvest right now? Yeah, really, it's it's been uh, quite phenomenal in terms of the price uh, increases we've seen in the last couple of weeks. I mean. Again, everyone knew that uh, how how tight this market was going to be as as yields were shrinking. You know, supplies were were just going to be far smaller this coming year, and and uh, and so prices have really responded to that the last couple of weeks. And in fact, it almost seemed like it maybe took a little while for markets to uh, I don't know wake up, if you will. Uh, I don't think that's because anyone was you know shocked by the fact that that supplies are down, but I, I think farmers naturally were reluctant sellers, probably strong holders of any old crop they had left. I think in some cases, buyers were probably more just kind of sitting on their hands waiting, uh, you know, maybe not aware of how tight the supplies were. Now we've seen prices really, really shoot higher here as, as harvest has gotten going. And, that, and that's maybe a reflection of as much as anything of, of just activity kind of resuming after a really quiet period of time. Yeah, in terms of just overall opportunity going forward, I guess there's maybe two ways to think about it. One is is certainly because supplies are, are so much smaller this coming year, you know, we just simply won't be able to export the volume of pulses that we otherwise would. It's not that the world doesn't want it. Uh, we just simply don't have it. <laughs> and of course, that'll vary a little bit by crop. But uh, yeah, we... In some instances, I think farmers have been taking advantage of, of some of these higher prices. And, you know, for example, pea prices are starting to maybe pull back a little bit, still extremely high, but, you know, maybe maybe just a reflection of farmers letting a little bit go at, at phenomenally high prices. And and now that they actually know what they have, you know, some confidence about knowing what's in the bin. So, you know, great opportunity for, for higher prices maybe helps offset the pain of those lower yields a little bit for, for growers that at least had, you know, some somewhat of a decent crop or, or an okay crop. But yeah, certain prices are high, just simply a reflection of the, the supply not being there. Mm-hmm, absolutely. John, can you shed some light on the latest StatsCan export numbers for new crop and how that might compare to maybe last year at this time? 
Yeah, so we, we saw volumes taper off in, in uh, July, for example, to kind of close out the crop year. And, and again, not a, not a surprise as, as stocks really uh, dwindled. And and so you know, it, it varies a little bit by, by crop. And so, you know, for example, something like yellow peas, you know, saw that number really taper off. And, and perhaps what is maybe a little, you know, is, is interesting is, is the fact that uh, almost nothing went to China. And, and of course, you know, China is, is our overwhelmingly largest buyer of, of yellow peas. You know, when they took minimal volumes in July. So, you know, what does that mean for, you know, going forward? Is that a bit of a, a hint of what, what you might expect this coming year? Uh, possibly. And, and not to suggest that, that China is not going to buy any peas by, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but there is a component of their demand and a, a sizable component that is used for, for feed. And as the price of peas get, you know, go up, you know, maybe that gets sort of bumped out of, out of rations. You know, maybe they got a little bit of coverage, had some inventories to work through. And so now, you know, as we look forward, you know, China, we need China to buy considerably fewer peas because they simply aren't there. You know, but maybe a little hint, you know, in terms of, of kind of the tail end of the crop year about what potentially how might things unfold here going forward. But, you know, for example, something like green peas, you know, held up relatively better. You know, supplies were a little better, you know, towards the tail end of the year, a little more uh, of a diverse demand base. And so uh, as we drill down into some of not just the individual pulses, but the types of different pulses, you know, kind of some different different threads and, and different stories, maybe that uh, that unfold and with something like lentils and uh, with red lentils and green lentils. Again, kind of two different stories in the sense of a more diverse demand base with green lentils demands a little more inelastic. And so that story maybe looks a little different than reds, which not that we won't have good demand for reds, but maybe just not quite as inelastic and not quite as, as tight on the supply side. And so, uh, you know, maybe kind of those uh, individual stories within the broader story, if you will. Mm-hmm. So what, what does the global demand situation look like for pulses right now and, and moving into the fall and winter? And do you anticipate any big shifts or, or non-traditional markets to watch for that might be new? Yeah, I, I don't think necessarily any big shifts on the demand side per se, other than uh, maybe again a bit of a reflection of of how do some of the volumes shift around to reflect the fact that we have the smaller crop. And so, as we talked a little bit about with peas, you know, we'll see China take considerably fewer yellow peas. Again, with the fact that we don't have it and that prices are high and maybe that's rationing some of that feed demand, for example, uh, the fact that supplies are so small means that China can buy quite a bit less and that's not you know, sort of bearish, quote unquote. You know, in the case of something like like red lentils, you know, I, I think the demand outlook is strong. I think, uh, you know, Turkey's maybe has a smaller crop than people were initially expected. I think some of uh, India's uh, watching their prices and some of their import policies suggest they'll be good buyers of, of red lentils again. Now, red lentils maybe aren't as tight on a relative basis compared to, say, green lentils. And so maybe there is, even with strong demand, is there the same uh, extreme upside potential? You know, perhaps not, but it's still a good market, good, strong market and, and good, strong demand. Uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, then, for example, in the case of maybe both green peas and green lentils, again, a pretty diverse demand base. I don't know that we're anticipating anything uh, uh, out of the ordinary per se, other than just, you know, the market trying to sort through who is going to get their share of what's a smaller pile. And so I think we'll really end up kind of getting a sense of which markets are a little more price sensitive, which ones are more inelastic, at what point are some markets maybe sort of start taking less just because they get priced out a little bit. And again, a function of a lack of supply, not just in Canada, but for example, with green lentils in the U.S., they'd be a significant global supplier of green lentils. And, and of course, they, they had, their lentil region had many of the same challenges we did. So, uh, you know, those, those are some of the things that we'll be watching here going forward and, and just kind of seeing how, uh, how that unfolds. 
Great, and, and great tie-in actually to my next question, John. Um, you, you touched on it already, but maybe you can expand a bit on how production is looking in other pulse-producing areas in the world. Um, you mentioned the U.S. and Turkey. What's going on in, in South America, Australia, the Black Sea, and, and other regions right now? Yeah, you know, I think, for example, in Australia, you know, that's uh, their, their conditions are pretty good. And and so, uh, you know, maybe pulse production, for example, with, with peas and faba beans might be down a little bit from last year, but still historically large. Looks like they'll have a large lentil crop. You know, that is one of the things, you know, where that'll uh, certainly not come anywhere close to filling the, the gap that Canada leaves. You know, but the fact that they do have a relatively large crop, you know, kind of helps a little bit on the supply side. I think in some cases, maybe some of these countries will be looking to Black Sea if, uh, if Black Sea production kind of, you know, sort of draw on some of that when Canadian supply isn't available. But again, that's, uh, you know, relatively small in the, in the grand scheme of things. You know, for example, Russia just doesn't export very many lentils. It's a relatively small volume. So, you know, perhaps filling a few holes here and there, but it's it's not going to be, be dramatic. I think Indian pulse production, uh, we'll, we'll see a little bit how that unfolds. You know, maybe some question, is it as large as, as the government estimates suggest, you know, perhaps not, you know, what does that mean? So, so I think by and large, certainly if you want to say ground zero for the pulse shortage, I think is in our own backyard and in, in the U.S., uh, some of these other regions maybe watch to see if they, you know, maybe can fill a few gaps a little bit. But, you know, certainly they don't have the footprint that we do on a global scale. So it's, it's more sort of uh, uh, partially filling a gap that is, you know, still pretty wide. Mm-hmm. Well, um, to end us off here today, John, after a challenging year, what opportunities or positives would you say that growers should watch for in this upcoming marketing season? Well, if there's one positive, I, I guess you could just say that, you know, is is, is how st- high prices are. You know, I mean, uh, you know, maybe that small consolation if you have almost no crop, you know, but at, at least for the for the production that is there, it's uh, it's 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 got high value. And, you know, the, the market will ebb and flow over the course of the year. I think each crop is going to you know kind of have its own story. Of course, it has its own different dynamics. But I think by and large, we expect a relatively strong market really all year, whether it can go dramatically higher or not. I mean, values are already pretty lofty. But nonetheless, you know, prices should stay strong all year. Again, just a, a fact that the global demand backdrop is favorable and the supplies are really small. So even if we do see some price pullbacks, that's probably going to be met with uh, good end user buying. I suspect if prices pull back, farmers are probably going to tap the brakes on selling. All those things are supportive. So I think that's I think that's really encouraging. I think the other thing to be watchful for as well, and, and of course, we're you know getting way ahead of our, we haven't even finished this existing harvest, so it's hard to think a whole lot about what production looks like next year. You know, but I, I do think as we look ahead to next year, it, it's uh, given how tight these markets are, uh, if we have a normal crop or good yields, obviously that, uh, you know, that can change things. Uh, but I don't think it's the kind of circumstances where pulse prices are high and so farmers are going to plant wall-to-wall pulses in Western Canada next year because the circumstances are similar for oats and for canola and for other crops. And so, you know, sometimes when you have really high pulse prices and other markets are, are kind of sluggish, you might say, oh, you know, farmers are going to plant way too many pulses and it's going to be this big bearish dynamic sort of coming up the pipeline. Uh, maybe not so much next year. And, and again, could acres go up? I mean, sure they could. Prices are phenomenal. If you have uh, you know, good growing conditions, yields can go up and suddenly, you know, you have a big, big rebound in production. Uh, that's certainly something to be cautious of. But again, it's, uh, you know, other crops are also competing for acres and uh, you know, the, the pipeline is going to be empty, you know, coming into next harvest. And so 
Does that mean next year's prices will look like this year's? I mean, a lot of things can play out, maybe not. But the setup is such that it, you know, maybe it's not as, uh, potentially not as bearish as one might think when you look at, say, today's pulse prices and assume that acres will explode. I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the case. And so in the short term, we got favorable prices. And in the longer term, you know, maybe another good opportunity for a, a good season for growers next year, depending how things shake out. Obviously, that's a long ways ahead, but something to be mindful of. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time today, John. That wraps up our discussion today. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. And for more information about this discussion today, you can find John's full market report online at saspulse.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. Join us next month to learn more about SPG's nominees acclaimed to our new board joining us in January. Stay tuned.